Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome, everybody, to today's episode of Dead Pundit Society. I am your host, as always. And if you guys tuned in last week, you'll know that I am one of two hosts on DPS now. Yes, that's right. We now have a dynamic duo on DPS. So joining me as co-host for the second week and for the foreseeable future, Mr. Ben Burgess, how you doing? Oh, I'm pretty good, considering, you know, I, I don't know if you heard there is a plague. There, There's the plague. There is that. Uh, yeah. we're, we're staying healthy. We're staying safe for now. Uh, we got a really great show for you guys. You know, I was uh, kind of down in my feels last week, but we're going to we're going to pick it up a notch. We're going to be a lot more optimistic. We've got a great guest to bring to you later on in the show. Mr. Chris Brooks is going to be joining us. He is a staff writer and organizer with Labor Notes. And uh, we're going to talk about a number of pieces that he has in the works and he has written over the month, past month or so about the coronavirus crisis and about labor's response and about the kind of demands that the left ought to be making. And perhaps even we might uh, we might think about why we aren't making those demands. But before we get to that, uh, we're also going to talk about a piece that just landed from Mr. Ben Burgess. He just posted uh, it was just posted on Jacobin online last week. <laughs> listeners might have noticed that we we did a lot of emoting. We were we were we we're kind of emo. Like I, I I cut my bangs like a little side cut. I was listening <laughs> to a lot of like Taking Back Sunday. Uh, I was deep in my feels about uh, the state of the left and the COVID crisis and the challenges that it presents us. Uh, You know, I got some comments. They were all positive, I should say. I got the positive comments. It was more like uh, just checking up on you, bro. You okay? You all right, bro? Those kind of, you know, those kind of tweets, those kind of uh, DMs you get on Facebook or whatever. Uh, I assure you, I'm okay, bro. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. How have you been uh, like, well, you just moved, right? I did. I just moved to a new place. It's a little bit bigger, which is not saying much because the uh, the closet I lived in before was pretty stifling, especially considering like you know we're all stuck indoors. Um, but I got a nice little house out in uh, in the burbs where like you know you can actually maybe afford to do things like that. It's a really wild uh, experience. Like living in a place where like the cost of living is is like lower has been like eye opening for me. Like I've just been living in these massive cities and metropolitan areas where like. Even like a small, like what what would have been like a lower middle class house when it was built like in the 1950s or 60s is now like a multi-million dollar property. Yeah, I, that's definitely my experience. You know, that uh, last uh, last summer, Jennifer and I moved from from New Jersey to uh, to Georgia to uh, to start a new job. And, um, you know, like shockingly enough, right, the further you get outside of the New York City metropolitan area, the uh, the further your rent goes because the like we're paid exactly what we're paid in New Jersey for this place, more or less. And I'm pretty sure our porch here is bigger than our kitchen was in New Jersey. <laughs> you feel rich. I feel like maybe <laughs> yeah. I could like I feel, <laughs> I feel like maybe I could upgrade to like, um, you know, like name brand beer or like na- like maybe maybe I can afford the, the LaCroix instead of like the off brand, like store brand uh, seltzer water. I don't know. I might splurge next time. Yeah. Do you, do you have uh, I'm feeling rich, baby. Rich. <laughs> I might start listening to rap music and maybe maybe get a grill or something. I don't know. I got I feel like I got a floss now that like I've got I've got a piece of property, you know? Yeah. I don't know. 
Maybe. No, absolutely. So do you like, you know, we were talking about uh, running and all that last time. And one of the reasons I started doing that was because I couldn't go exercise room here. And, uh, you know, the uh, complex we live in was obviously uh, shut down, you know, when the plague started. Right. Yeah. Um, but do you actually like have like uh, like workout equipment like in your place or or I did I did actually right when this all hit I got sick as hell as the listeners will know I don't know if it was COVID who knows I probably never will know because the antibody tests are totally fucking pathetically unreliable <laughs> anybody who's taking solace and liking the antibody tests should look at the science and think again it's atrocious I'll never know if I had the Rona but uh, I got pretty sick early 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 on after after some international travel. And um, so I read the writing on the wall very, very quickly. And I was like, this is going to be really bad, you guys. Like, it's the beginning of March, like March 1st. And all of like the airport security people are wearing like gloves and masks. Like shit's about to go down. And uh, like notorious gym rat that I am, like I ran to like uh, the internet to try to get, to try to pick up any piece of equipment that I could. So I got a nice little weight set <laughs> and I just, I just threw it in the garage. I've got a garage now because I told you I'm rich, right? <laughs> I'm rich. Yeah. So I have like a real fucking garage now. It's crazy. And uh, so, yeah, I threw my I threw my little weight set in there and um, I'm going to be pumping some iron in the next uh, couple of months, you know, until the gyms open, if they open in 2020, which I'm skeptical. I'm I'm honest to God skeptical. I think people who think these like sweat spit boxes, <laughs> also known as gyms. Right. And like, I'm not too precious. I'm like, I don't you know, I'm, I'm like the guy who like I don't really like wipe down my equipment like before I use it. I wipe down after like I'm not a fucking sociopath. Right. Like I'm not generally scared of other people's body fluids like under normal times. But like we got to be honest about what a gym is, man. It's a sweat box and a spit box. And I don't think these things are going to open up in 2020 for the foreseeable future. So if you guys aren't out there like trying to find something to pick up and put down uh, at home, uh, you guys are probably shit out of luck for the coming year. Well, How about you? Uh, yeah, I don't. Although I'm, I'm really regretting that now, right? Because Because uh, I didn't even think of this until – until the gym in my building closed, you know, that like it's, it, was, it was too late then, right? So it's like, all right, I'll at least start running so, you know, I, I don't become completely pathetic, you know, right now. But, yeah, I'm going to have to start figuring out some some stuff like I could do on non-running days, you know, that like with that doesn't involve any equipment, you know, until I can afford to buy some equipment. But I'm going to do I'm, – I'm just going to flag it here, you know, instead of just trying to do it naturally – because because this is really bad, but I'm I'm gonna do like the most like clunky morning zoo radio transition of all time, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, and say speaking of uh, pumping iron, uh, <laughs> there's a there's an email. Speaking of pumping iron, what did you did something related to that that very topic uh, just just today, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I have a oh, new, shit. I have a new, I have a new article that came out in Jack. I promise today. we'll get better at transitions as I, we go I, on. Dear yeah, listener. yeah. This was, I was, this I was, was, I was, I was gonna try to just do it, but then like I, I just <laughs> felt this overwhelming <laughs> sense of shame about just saying that. Uh, but in, in any case, speaking of pumping iron, Arnold Schwarzenegger is a far right libertarian nut job who's created a GoFundMe to try to help first responders in lieu of any real, real state, you know, state backed social welfare oriented regime. That might keep people on this side of the grave. Yeah, yeah. So the the article is called "We Shouldn't Need GoFundMe to Respond to Catastrophes. We Need a Strong Welfare State." And part of the inspiration for this was Sean, who's one of the articles uh, editors. Jacobin had like uh, forwarded me this email. It's like, oh my god, isn't this amazing? You should write something about this. Uh, 
from anytime you get a video from Arnold Schwarzenegger, like asking you to do anything, like that's probably a pretty good prompt. Like, yeah, yeah. So the um, and like it's the cognitive dissonance is amazing, right? So so just to set this up on Friday, GoFundMe sent out this email from Arnold Schwarzenegger announcing the creation of something called the Frontline Responders Fund, and they've done a couple of these things. Like a couple of days before that, there was a GoFundMe mass email about America's Food Fund. America's Food Fund says it exists to feed, uh, the quote was, feed our neighbors during this unimaginable crisis. Frontline Responders Fund, the email from Schwarzenegger, says that it's there to rush life-saving supplies to our medical heroes. And of course, one thing that I, I got to say, purple pros aside, that's just amazing about this is like back up here. Like I'm very old, right? I, I I recently turned forty, but other people who uh, young socialist whippersnappers might not remember this far. But do you know Arnold Schwarzenegger actually used to be the governor of California? <laughs> he sure did. Uh, Cali- he, California, welcome right. to California. Yeah, uh, he, he doesn't mention his experience as governor in the email. He does mention his his other career. He says, "This is a quote. It's too good not to read." I played the part of the action hero in the movies, but doctors, nurses, and hospital staff are the real action heroes. <laughs> Look, there was no transition we ever could have could have uh, attempted from the intro to your piece here. They would have been worse than that. <laughs> no, no, there's not. I thought he was gonna. I thought he was gonna allude to his uh, his his multiple Mister Olympia trophies. That would have been <laughs> that would have been a lot better. Yeah, I mean, he used to. You know, he used to have a way with words. I, I can, you know, if you if you look up on YouTube the uh, his the actual clips from the documentary Pumping Iron, um, you could find some pretty amazing ones in there. You oh know. yeah, I do the bicep curls because it feels like I'm calming. <laughs> That's right. It just feels like I'm calming. It's so nice. I just curl and I'm calming every day, all the time, just calming. That's that's a paraphrase of <laughs> one of my favorites. Yeah. Don't Ben act like I didn't sit around in my early twenties and late teens <laughs> watching Pumping Iron like at three o'clock in the morning with me and my bros. Act like that didn't happen, okay? I dare you, because <laughs> it did. Uh, we've established uh, that I'm yeah. a hopeless meathead. Uh, yeah. So, but like, so, let's so, talk about what this what your piece but, really well, is well, covering I mean, I, here, right? I, I, like, I did just want to say. Something that, like, before we even get into the actual point of the piece, something that I think is just too striking not to notice here is when he was governor of California. That's the thing that happened not that long ago. Oh, I see what you're getting at right. The, yeah. Like, he, he, yeah. Well, what did he do? Well, he, he very conveniently glossed over his uh, his record as a governor. Yeah. I mean, like, like, like he now says that nurses are action heroes. But he spent all this time as governor fighting with the nurses you did. He was always proposing yeah. these massive cuts to California's Department of Health and Human Services, Medi-Cal, which is their Medicaid system. Uh, they also had a program for uh, for providing low-cost insurance uh, for, for poor children. You know, he you know, proposed cuts to that. It doesn't really seem like his actions in the past reflect this belief that he's professing that uh, – that health workers are action heroes. Is it really that inconsistent, though? Because isn't that really the role of Hollywood today? The role of Hollywood is to just put, put, implant all of these fantasies, like in lieu of real politics, and not just in lieu of real politics, but like in obfuscation of real, of real like political histories, right? Like, I mean, look no further. Like I've I've told a couple of my like um, 
notorious RBG t-shirt wearing lib friends, <laughs> you know, uh, about like what what Cuomo is actually doing as governor of New York, you know, as they're fawning over him. Like some of these women are like, you know, getting the vapors, like watching uh, our boy Cuomo <laughs> and his brother on CNN, you know, each day, you know, getting all hot and bothered. What look at these, like these liberal, like barrel chested. Uh, dimpled, you know, uh, chinned, uh, you know, Italians, you know, laying down the law to Trump or whatever. It's making them hot and bothered in, until I remind them, right? Or tell them for the first time that he, in the midst of all of this, he's cutting, you know, uh, healthcare funding in, in the state. And, and nobody even knows. Nobody even knows because we're all enthralled in the action, action hero version of, of reality. It's just, it's, it's wild. Yeah, we no. should just get Bill Pullman on on the on yeah. on the stage. No, and he can just play our, our our movie TV <laughs> crisis president for the remainder of COVID, and uh, everybody will feel good about it. No question, right? So, but of course, in a in a perverse way, it's not even inconsistent because, like, one of the things that that I talk about in the article is you know speaking of of ancient history, you know, I, I know uh, this this happened when. Uh, you know, the average new DSA recruit was like teething, but uh, uh, but in uh, maybe not teething, that's an exaggeration. But, you know, 2008, when um, Ron Paul, if you remember him, was uh, was was running for, for president. And by the way, 2008 was like such a dismal time. Like nobody remembers how bad this is, like politically. It was it was it was so dismal that like even like leftists. You know, like kind of like had a few kind words to say for like Ron Paul because it's like, well, hell, at least like he's somebody who's like getting up on a debate stage at a national level and like making some anti-war comments is better than nothing. A lot of people who who became socialists immediately following that time who were like radicalized by Ron Paul's variant of like anti-war quasi-libertarianism yeah it's yeah, yeah how you see that yeah a lot of people who i didn't myself um yeah but a lot of my comrades in that at that time who were who were becoming like hey i think i'm a socialist i want to hang out with other socialists were mentioning at the time that they're like fuck like six months ago i thought ron paul was the bee's knees you know um, yeah anyway, no yeah. absolutely and you know i mean i i i was a socialist before that but i mean like i i enjoyed like at least like got like you know so i mean i was never obviously a ron paul supporter but like you know i i i you know like i just enjoyed the dissonance of like seeing somebody (laughs) at a republican debate stage sounded like noam chomsky every time foreign policy came up that was good but at other times let's be clear he's a piece of shit Uh, oh he's suggesting otherwise it's just that you have to go back to that moment and understand how unspeakably dire the situation was for 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 leftists in 2008 to 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 join forces with somebody like ron paul well look remember antiwar.com or was it antiwar.org yep uh whatever that was it was a sort of like it was a multi-political uh tendency you know uh collect collection of anti-war activists including like uh hardcore libertarians and i know because like uh these assholes used to come and harass us when we would have our tables set up in anti-war rallies as like open socialists and i was like i thought we were allies what happened you know <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 no I'm, I'm absolutely and by the way i will say that like i think that you know, so I mean, a lot of that I think is understandable given given the sort of direness of I mean, like I was people 
who aren't old enough to remember just do not know how dismal a time period that was politically. It's 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 hard to even put in words how bad it was compared to even right now when things are not great, right? But uh, no question. But I think there's also a failure of analysis there, which is look. I mean, not to say that like obviously, you know, if you're if you're Bernie Sanders, if you're Rokan, if you're AOC or whatever, and like you have some sort of opportunity legislatively to, you know, to work with with some horrendous right-wing libertarian Republican to, uh, you know, to try to do something like end U.S. support for the Saudi war. And yeah, but of course you should do that, right? But like on a broader level, right, see these things as like alliances rather than these sort of temporary convergences of people going on different tracks, like is a very deep mistake. And I think it's important, you know, I think it ties into a lot of things and not just the anti-war movement. Like, like it's very easy to say, like when you see like cops hassling like you know a young black guy on the uh, on the train in Philadelphia for for not wearing a mask, and like there's a very famous picture where they're like literally there were like ten like transit cops like pulling away one dude, you know for for doing that. Of course, it's horrifying, and like somebody you know your better libertarians will like share your horror with that. But I think it's important to recognize that any sense in which that makes them your ally is like extremely limited because because really the options in practice aren't that we have this kind of crazy police state response uh, to the pandemic that's summed up by that picture or we just don't have a response right which is i guess what the libertarians would want right. because they quite, just want every man woman and child for him or her itself yeah right? yeah quite, you know, and, then, and then those terms like <laughs> let the market sort it out yeah, um, let let, let them all die, and the, the free market will sort it out, right? That's uh, yeah. My, yeah. The, my my fucking anti tank weapon that I just brought into the subway store will protect me, as we saw uh, with our, our our homie. And was it Tennessee? It was it Florida or Tennessee? And he had like a camo shorts and flip flops with two pistols, <laughs> and then a fucking anti tank weapon on his back, like at a subway sandwich shop. I yeah. shit you not if you guys haven't yeah. seen this. Uh, so, 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 so that's not going to happen, right? Like, <laughs> you know, for a variety of reasons. There's a lot, there's a lot in that scenario the, the, that's just not going to happen. There's a, there's a lot of that that's not going to happen. There's a very, like, slim but real opening for promoting a better response. But our actual options aren't, like, a police state response, a social democratic response, and the crazy libertarian response. Our actual responses, options are the police state response to the social democratic response, right? So, yeah, like, yeah, just, yeah. just to put this in really simple terms, either we could have a response that is summed up by the picture of 10 transit cops hauling off one, like, young black guy for not wearing a mask, or we could have a response that's summed up by the pictures you get in some other countries where a cop is standing on the street corner passing out masks, right? Like, those are our actual options, And the same thing applies to libertarians. And even in 2008, when things were so dark and dismal for the left that, you know, that that a lot of people with good political impulses, you know, were feeling inappropriately warm and fuzzy feelings towards Ron Paul, there were some moments when he really reminded you of who he was. And one of those was at a Republican debate, 2008, when uh, Wolf Blitzer asked him, hey, Let's say in your, you know, libertarian utopia, there's some 30-year-old worker who doesn't think he needs to buy health insurance because, you know, he's healthy and, you know, whatever. But then, like, something happens and he needs an operation and now he can't afford it. Do you just let him die? Right? Or what's what's the plan here? And 
Paul and his answer, he hemmed and hawed about personal responsibility a little bit, but because even Ron Paul isn't quite emotionally prepared to face up to the what's actually entailed by his politics, which really would be just let him die. Nice and so he, he didn't want to admit that, right? So he said, well, the neighborhoods, communities, the churches, you know, pick up the slack. That, that, and, that's the compassionate conservatism of that, like, 90s, 2000, like, uh, right-wing coalition, right? Well, we want to take all the means of survival away from people, but then just hope that the churches and the charities will pitch in so that they don't just die on the street, you know, and for all of us to see. <laughs> um, yeah, but that's, I mean, let's, let's, let's get to, I mean, that's essentially what your piece is arguing against here. Uh, you know, yeah. we are relying in, in one of the most trying times in human history, modern civilized human history. We are relying on charity, on GoFundMe, which might as well in this day and age be called Go Fuck Yourself, because that's yes. the best, that's about <laughs> as, that's what it essentially amounts to, right? When you're left, you're left to the generosity of randos on the internet uh, to survive rather than like a well-funded and strong social welfare state. And, you know, let's not kid ourselves. Like, you know, the 400 billionaire families in this country have more than enough money to fund these programs. And by the way, we have this thing called dollar seniorage and the global fucking economy. Yeah, we print the dollars. I know that's not exactly how it happens. MMT guys, get off me. Anyway, uh, (laughs) don't DM me if you're into MMT. And I know I just said I print, they print dollars, But, but you know, we have the benefit of controlling the currency that runs the global economic system, and and we're relying on GoFundMe. So, I mean, I think there's there's a whole lot more to say about this. Uh, there's some humor. There's some um, hypocrisy with Schwarzenegger. There's uh, just an appalling turn to these sort of feel good first responders or our heroes or whatever. Yeah, there was a there was an article like a, a parody article in McSweeney's, which which was very good on this where. Like the the premise of the article was that uh, Jurassic Park had uh, reopened despite the fact that like the dinosaurs were all loose and like people were being (laughs) eaten by velociraptors. And they're like, yeah, I mean, people are being eaten by velociraptors. Don't worry. We've got some like, you know, ambulances, you know, going around to help. And I know a lot of the ambulances have themselves been attacked by velociraptors. Which is exactly why we've painted Hero Mobile on the side, right? <laughs> to express our appreciation for them. And, you know, that's like that's that's really like where we are with this. That like there's all this like that's what's summed up by that Schwarzenegger email is that kind of like sentimental, you know, kind of like like sort of re, you know we're not really going to do anything for you on the most concrete level god knows when he was exercising political power himself he didn't right you know and, and the people i'm sure he's supported now you know aren't but we will you know we'll we'll pass the collection plate for you and and we'll weep about what heroes you are right even as we continue to send you out into the plague zone and like this is a place i think where like famous you know there's that famous phrase from you know rosa Luxemburg about you know socialism or barbarism and i think at the very least you know what we're talking what we're See now is, you know, at the very least some like minimal social democracy or else just like this Ron Paul hell world of like hoping, hoping that uh, that the online 2020 version of passing the collection plate at the church is going to do it, except for it's not even, you know, the particularly insane thing about it is that if you look at GoFundMe, which one is an incredibly degrading way of filling these needs because you're throwing yourself on the mercy of random people and hoping that, you know, your photo is, you know, like that people like your photo and that, 
as they tell you in their tips for making your your GoFundMe go viral, you know, that you've got a captivating way of telling the story, which, of course, means like, oh, yeah, no, no, another another guy needs to pay his hospital bills. Boring, right? You know, like, uh, you know, but it's also like we don't even just have one big collection plate, which would be bad enough because it's voluntary and so it's not going to be based on even sort of basic principles like progressive taxation, right? You know, that like we – that we extract more from you, you know, as a chunk of your income as we go up, but also just that it's that like what we actually have are like 10,000 competing collection plates. Right. You know, I, mean, that, like, I was going to say, I mean, we all have seen successful GoFundMe projects. Sure. Like, thank God for that. I mean, it's, it's nice. Yeah. I mean, if somebody needs somebody to death, when they need to pay for funeral expenses or whatever, and it, it gets fully funded. And then some, it's like, man, that's, it's, I'm, it's, it sucks that we live in such a hell world, but at least they can, Make do, but what you what you see far less frequently are these are, are failed GoFundMe's. They're out there. I mean, it's far they far outnumber the successful ones. But the failed GoFundMe GoFundMe's are are really fucking heartbreaking. And I've come across some even just by accident, where like people just don't know enough people. They're not really online. It doesn't go viral, and and whatever like medical bills or whatever funeral expenses they were trying to cover just like falls like uh, horrendously short. And I mean, it's really fucking tragic uh, the, the way that this is going. Let's let's wind this up. We could talk about this uh, all 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 day. It's a really important piece. It's going to be in the it's in the show notes. Uh, it just dropped today as we are recording. It is Monday. It's going to go out tomorrow, so it'll definitely be on Jacobin. Check that out. We don't uh, we shouldn't need GoFundMe to respond to catastrophes. We need a strong welfare state. Is the title. You got to love Jacobin. They don't even make you read the article to know what it's going to say. I mean, there it is right there. There's the argument. You guys heard it here. You don't need to read. Yeah. Just kidding. Read the fucking thing. Okay. Nobody yeah. reads anymore. It's like a thousand words. It'll take you five minutes. Yeah, it's a short read, but it tells you kind of what the the neoliberal arch libertarian hellscape looks like if we don't fight back and pose an alternative. And we're going to get to our interview today with Chris Brooks, staff writer and organizer with Labor Notes here in just a minute. But before we do that, uh, speaking of GoFundMe, speaking of uh, of uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger begging for your money, I am once again here uh, to ask you to become a patron of DPS. We cannot do this without the generosity of our listeners. I think we've made the case time and time again as to why it is that we need a well-funded, well-resourced socialist media ecosystem in order to face down the challenges that are in front of us today. And, you know, I'm really pumped to have brought on uh, Ben Burgess here to chat with me uh, each week and to to really investigate some of the most pressing questions, problems, and dilemmas that are in front of us as a left right now. And uh, I don't want to get too sappy about this. I know money is tight for a lot of you, but if you have the means to do so, I encourage you to head to patreon.com slash dead pundits and smash that subscribe button at a level at which you are comfortable. I definitely don't want to to push anybody into doing anything right now that's going to put them at risk financially because Lord knows we don't have a social welfare state to lean back on. But you know, many of you do have expendable resources. Many of you, were you, were you, were you donating uh, monthly to the Bernie Sanders campaign? I was, yep. Yeah, I, I I wasn't donating monthly, but I was donating pretty frequently. And many of you, you know, may have some expendable political resources as well. You know, not not uh, shoveling it into Bernie Sanders campaign coffers each each month. So consider moving that money uh, to other causes. If it's not DPS, uh, some other project like it. We have a, a growing, thriving ecosystem, and uh, but it won't be that way automatically or forever. We really do need your support in order to keep this thing up and running. And you will get access to our weekly B sides. 
you'll get access to the segment that I'm calling in case you missed it, which is uh, I'm sort of scouring the internet for some of the best audio lectures, um, that type of thing. And I'm replaying those for my patrons because I know not all of you can be extremely online all of the time. There's a lot of really awesome interviews or lectures or presentations that get overlooked. And uh, I find those through uh, my various online networks and I replay those for my patrons. It's really, um, it's really a masterclass. Uh, not, not by me. I'm not saying by me. I'm, I'm not a master Ben, uh, but my <laughs> guests, there's some smart motherfuckers. Uh, yeah. I'm sure you concur. You were once a guest. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. And, uh, and Chris is certainly a smart motherfucker. Absolutely. We're going to bring one of those smart motherfuckers to you right now. All right. Joining us today is Chris Brooks. Chris is a staff writer and organizer with Labor Notes. He has written a really excellent piece on the corona crisis that Ben and I have been discussing at length. It's called The Hammer and the Dance, Why Reopening Now Will Kill. That was out on the Labor Notes website. It'll be in the show notes. That was May 1st, but we're going to update that today. Chris, thanks for coming on DPS. Hey, happy to be here. So before we get started talking about some of the aspects of the corona crisis, the labor movement, the threats posed by this right-wing coordination that we're going to see, this onslaught that we are already seeing in many places, and we're going to be seeing in, in a quite stark relief in the next couple of months, let's talk about uh, Labor Notes. You are an organizer there. It is a, uh, a really important institution, especially today in the post-burning moment. Talk about labor notes. You guys have troublemaker schools. You guys go a long way into kind of integrating the like intellectual project of the left, bringing forward the history and the lessons, but also like making it incredibly practical and pragmatic for everyday workers. Uh, yeah, thank you. So, you know, Labor Notes has been around for 40 years. We're a media and organizing project, just like you said. Uh, I think we've got like two sides of the project. So on the media side, we have a website we run, a monthly news magazine that goes out providing analysis and practical guidance to people on how to organize what's happening in the economy, what's going on in particular unions. And it's from the Labor Notes perspective, which means that it's centered around what actual rank and file workers can do. We believe uh, very strongly in rank and file democracy, which means that oftentimes we're uh, butting heads with labor leadership because um, we want to build a progressive and militant labor movement. Uh, we don't believe in partnership with the boss. We don't believe in concessions. And uh, we also publish a series of books like Secrets of a Successful Organizer that we really think is, is helping to draw from the lessons of the last 40 years that we've learned in, the, in, the, in the, the labor movement and how people can organize and transform their unions into the fighting organizations we know they should be from the bottom up. And then on the, on the other side, the organizing, we have troublemaker schools, uh, which are like one day conferences in cities to bring rank and file activists from across unions and sectors and industries together. We also have a huge conference every two years. It's usually the largest conference of rank and file activists from different unions from around the world. Unfortunately, we just had to cancel it because of the coronavirus, right? Because of the pandemic. Um, so, you know, like we're like everybody thinking through in this moment, like how do we, how do we adjust? How do we provide people the resources they need? What does, what does this look like going forward? Uh, so we've been having a, a lot of webinars, a lot of, you know, Zoom calls, like opportunities for people to come together and still share out and learn. Uh, about what's going on and how they're organizing in this moment. So if people go to our website, labornotes.org, they can keep up to date on everything that we're doing and they can look to future trainings and, uh, you know, opportunities to, to meet with people uh, online, uh, you know, going forward. 
Yeah. Yeah. This stuff is so important, not for the obvious, you know, the obvious reasons like notwithstanding. But if you've ever been in a workplace, particularly a unionized workplace, you'll know how vital the experience, the veteran leadership, the experience that you get on like, you know, from the rank and file, you know, uh, going into a unionized work workplace. You know, you've, you've got your stewards who sort of bring you in and, and, and show you the way, you know, not just, you know, the political kind of organizing components, but just the day to day aspects of best practices on the job, how to stay safe, how to do your job well. You know, how to keep your job, right? Uh, how, to, how to steer clear of the ire of the bosses, you know, like, and then of course, you know, the, the organizing component and the learning the lessons on the picket lines and, and leading up to a strike and just learning about what unions are and how they operate and how they impact people's lives. A lot of people don't have access to that these days, right? With the hollowing out of the trade union sector, the public and private sector. And so, you know, it's almost like, you know, in a sense, what Labor Notes does is it, it sort of operates as a proxy for that kind of like more organic access to the labor movement for a lot of people. And I think that's, you know, that, that's really, that's really great. It's important stuff. Let's pivot now to your piece. It's called the hammer and the dance. Let's, let's begin there. What is the hammer and the dance? It's got a really uh, important meaning that is going to be impacting all of us here in, in the coming months. Yeah. So, you know, uh, we've all just experienced nationwide a series of lockdowns across the country. Uh, so that to me is the hammer shutting down the economy. It's the biggest step we can take. You know, the disease, the virus is spread from human to human, right? We are the vectors through which it travels. And so the, the best way that we can stop the spread of it, or the, you know, one of the most profound ways is by get stopping human interaction at the, at the deepest level possible. So shutting down the economy, only allowing uh, essential workers, you know, in healthcare and postal, you know, transit to, to continue working, telling everybody else to stay home. That's the hammer. It's it's a big tool, but it's it's a very blunt tool. It's a very clumsy tool that we've used. Um, and the hope with that was that, you know, if we if we use the hammer, that the the number of confirmed cases, the number of deaths would stop rising so so precipitously and begin to s- to slow down and then and, and actually reverse. So we would instead of having one person, every you know single person that's con- that that is uh, infected with the virus, then going on to infect up to potentially two to four people, it, they would only stay quarantined and and not infect anybody else. So we could stop the the virus in its tracks. And then if we did that the dance would happen. We would, uh, if we flatten the curve and we're starting from the bottom, we could then go out into society, start to reopen some things and and have all of the mitigation tools in play at that point. So mass testing, uh, making sure that everybody who has symptoms gets tested, contact tracing, which is super important when they've done in other countries, right? So if I, if I come down with symptoms and, uh, you know, and then I get, or I get tested and I learned that I, that I'm, I'm positive, with the coronavirus, then they go back two weeks and find every single person that I came into contact with and let them know so they can stay home and quarantine themselves, right? That, that's that been really an important tool in most of the other countries in stopping the spread of the disease, as well as making sure that everybody has the personal protective equipment they need, right? So wearing proper masks, like the N95s that actually filter the air as opposed to just a cloth or surgical mask that really just stops you from, you know, shooting droplets, uh, you know, like five or six feet at a time, but, but they have no filtering uh, ability whatsoever. Um, you know, and, and so that way the healthcare system doesn't get overrun. So that way the people who are being exposed is limited at any one period of time. So the hammer and the dance is basically this oscillation, right? It's going from, well, you know, if, if the number of cases climbs up substantially, then we bring it crashing down with the hammer and then we can open back up slowly with the dance. Unfortunately, in the United States, we have basically fucked this up every way we possibly could, right? The Trump administration 
has has, you know, uh, has basically said that the federal government has no effective role in stopping the spread of the virus. Everything is going to the states. So even though we locked down the economy for all these weeks, the number of confirmed cases, and the number of deaths rather than going down has, a, has essentially plateaued. Right. So like it's just a little bit below what it was at its peak. So, you know, 80,000 people have died. Over 1.3 million people have confirmed cases. We know the number of confirmed cases is actually much higher than that. But because we don't have testing capabilities in any national level, because we don't have contact tracing, we don't really know who's been who, who's actually uh, been infected. Um, and, 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 you know, they're saying that now by June 1st, we could have up to 3000 people dying a day. So we have the most confirmed cases of the coronavirus in the world, and we're going to have this astronomical sum of people dying. And the Trump administration has basically said, we don't care. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's it's a catastrophe at every level. But, you know, just in terms of, of thinking about what a non-catastrophic response would be, you know, you, um, you're emphasizing, you know, the kind of test and trace regime that's been very effective in places like South Korea. And, you know, I, I think you're absolutely right to, to emphasize that. But my sense, I could be wrong, but my sense is that like some folks on the left have maybe been like a little bit gun shy about sort of like full throatedly demanding that possibly because there's a certain angle from which you can look at it and be like, oh, you're talking about like mass surveillance. We're normally against that. Right. So, I mean, I was just wondering if you could maybe like speak to that tension a little bit. And like, you know, how to think about the importance of this in like a sane strategy for dealing with the virus, given those kinds of concerns. Right. Yeah. I mean, the libertarian left really kind of runs the show in a lot of ways, doesn't it? It's kind of telling with the collapse of like collective institutions that this strand of like hardcore civil libertarian libertarian leftism would kind of crop. I I, I don't want to say that because I I value those words. I think those words are important. I don't want to denigrate them, but yeah. What what do you think about that? That's, that's a great question, Ben. (laughs) That, that is a wonderful question. And I have a number of responses. Um, So I'll just say, first of all, like I would identify myself as being a hardcore civil libertarian, right? Same. That's why Um, I stopped myself. I was like, (laughs) I don't know. I don't want to say that because I like, I, I, I I think, so the question is, is this like a, is this a phony version of civil, civil libertarianism perhaps is what might be the question. So I think in some ways what we're running up against is that there's not, um, the United States has no, not only, not only do we not have any public health infrastructure meaningfully in this country, we have no public health ideology in this country. So what we're seeing happening in state across state is that they're, they're issuing out this bullshit about personal responsibility in the midst of a pandemic. It's on you, right? And we see this with most health and safety programs in most workplaces is it's blame the worker. Right. You know, so like, 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 I think if you go back to like the very foundation of OSHA, OSHA was a game changer in how we think about the relationship that workers have to work, because it used to be the case that the assumption was when you showed up to work and you took that paycheck, you yourself agreed to the to the conditions of the job. You yourself took responsibility for whatever safety measures were there or not. Right. So by signing up and getting that check, you agreed to take it. Well, what OSHA did is it said, absolutely not. Employers actually have a general responsibility to ensure that you have a safe and healthy workplace. And that is a total shift in how we think about this. I think, unfortunately, OSHA has been totally weakened, you know, and this ideology has been consistently chipped away, just like everything else, like with labor law, uh, you know, uh, and any other protections that are meaningfully pro- provided people. And, and, just to, and just to jump in, I mean, obviously, I'm not telling anything you don't know, you know, better than I do, but I'm sure. But um, but certainly, certainly my experience, right, it's been, you know, whatever, I'm a 
pansy ass writer and academic. It's been years since I had this kind of job, right? But back when I did, right, have the sort of jobs where this stuff would come up, right? My consistent experience was that, you know, safety laws were completely unenforced in non-unionized workplaces and somewhat enforced in unionized ones. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you see like what's happening with Amazon right now. Surveillance is already a reality on the ground in these (laughs) workplaces. Right. I mean, so we want to talk about the reality of surveillance is that employers are surveilling workers from the time that they step foot in there. They're trying to surveil your social media. They're trying to understand what you're doing so that way they can better control you, make sure that you're not unionizing and you're not organizing. So if on the other side, we're saying like, I'm afraid of what's happening in South Korea. Well, let's talk about South Korea. South Korea has not only a massive, you know, uh, testing program, like they, you know, by the time we were in March, they were in March, they had um, tested a percentage of their population that would be like 40 times a per capita of the United States. It's just absolutely unreal. They got everybody together with, you know, they had the first, their first confirmed case in South Korea was on the same day as the United States on January 20th, right? Um, So they had the first confirmed case on January 20th as the United States. It's the same timeline, right? Within a week, they declared a national emergency. They got all of their their manufacturers together, said, we're going to be creating test kits. We're going to be directing private enterprise to pursue the public goals and ends that we need. Um, They started mass producing these kits. They started instituting a contact tracing program, which, by the way, (laughs) scientists right now say that if we were to institute the same level of contact tracing in the United States, it would be a massive jobs program (laughs) at the height of all this unemployment. We would need to employ somewhere between 180 to 300,000 people, which I am all for. Um, And then they've also done some other things. You know, there was an epidemiologist on Twitter that was um, kind of, uh, you know, memorializing his time that he had just spent in in South Korea and talking about how uh, uh, intrusive it actually was, you know, so him and his family went there. And one of the first things they did was that they were pulled out of line. They were, you know, they had this tough conversation with the police about where have you been? What have you done? How do you feel? They were given ankle bracelets that monitored them on a on GPS, right? And said that you have to stay for two weeks. You have to stay in quarantine. And we're going to monitor you to make sure that you stay in quarantine because we can't have you going out and infecting everybody else. Now, again, I know that this sounds really scary, but if you think about what actually happens in the US society right now is that we lock people up without hesitation, and then we're letting them die in our prisons, right? Like if you look at the places with the highest per capita coronavirus spread in the United States, it's not New York City. It's rural communities that have large prisons and slaughterhouses. Right. So in the United States, I would say that, like, you know, people are are fixated often on the wrong things. What we should be fixated on is public health. What can we do? What is the role of the government? Right. Because for decades, we've been hearing government is the problem consistently. What we see right now is that government is the answer. We should be passing Medicare for all. We should be nationalizing the healthcare system. We should be closing down these prisons and we should be going in and telling the, the slaughterhouses that if you can't operate safely, you have no actual justification to operate, period. Right. And then we'll have to deal with some food shortages. Like, you know, and here's the other thing that I think yeah. we don't appreciate on, on the left. Right. I'm sorry. I know I'm, I'm on a tangent here. on a tear. Yeah. But, one of the things that, but one of the things that we don't that I don't think we do well with is we don't look at the fact that this that, that science should be informing the, the options before us. But really, we have nothing but a series of bad options. Right. I mean, like there are like like moving forward, there's there's choices that we have to make. Now, the best options, obviously, would be for us to go after the 400 richest families in the United States that own $2.9 trillion and say, we're going to seize your wealth in order to fund all of these programs. That's an ideal situation. And many, but, but, but it's, it's not really reflective of probably what the uh, political reality uh, is on the ground in most of these areas, right? And we're going to have to have a lot of compromises. So how do we do the best we can? And what are the kinds of decisions we should be making? That's a different question. Yeah. And actually, I, I really liked your point about um, workplace 
surveillance because this I think maybe isn't talked about enough. Even like I think a lot of people kind of know what a uh, Orwellian nightmare Amazon is, but even even a lot of um, like white collar workplaces actually since since the beginning of the lockdowns, a lot of employers who've had to send people to work from home have had to uh, have really been freaking out about the loss of control, and so they've been doing. Like uh, they've been forcing people to fill their computers with spyware or like in some cases just like these really crude mechanisms like um, like forcing people to log into a video conference call at the beginning of the day and just keep it on all day while they work. You know, so they can be monitored. Yeah, Wait till uh, they have to ask permission to go to the restroom. Yeah. And, then that per- and then that permission is denied. They yeah. don't really know what it is to be a blue collar worker. I mean, and it's coming. It's coming for all of us. I mean, I shit you not. When we first started this conversation, I just watched an Amazon driver. Uh, drive across the street, sprint up my neighbor's driveway, drop a package, turn around, snap a, a, a photo, you know, because they have to prove that they did the job that they said they did, because, of course, they're all untrustworthy, lazy layabout bastards, right? Workers, <laughs> that is, right? Of course, obviously. And uh, we don't care about their job, take no pride in, you know, their, their day-to-day uh, actions. Anyway, I digress, because we're all moral monsters, really, unless we're, you know, billionaires. Uh, and he sprinted back to his truck and, and flew off. This took like five seconds. It was impressive. But this guy's running around all fucking day doing this, you know, like they, they kind of hell the 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 satanic treadmills that, that people are on right now, like are, are things that people at the turn of the 20th century never could have dreamed of. Right. Um, it's it's horrendous. And I want to get back to the surveillance question, because it seems like I mean, this is this is fundamentally a class issue, isn't it? I mean, this writer who was reeling at, at wearing ankle bracelets in South Korea. Right. Is, is, a, is a guy who can otherwise in the United States likely avoid situations where exposure is likely. He doesn't work in a slaughterhouse. He's not an Amazon delivery driver. He's not an Instacart driver. Uh, he doesn't work uh, in, a, in a grocery store with, you know, thankless, you know, maskless customers uh, coughing all over him in line all day long. So he can get by without surveillance and without risk of the virus. Whereas like people who work in these workplaces, I'm sure they would they would welcome forms of surveillance that would keep other sick people away from them and keep them them and their families safe. And so ultimately, that surveillance question in, in that this kind of like phony, perhaps faux civil libertarian question is at, the, at its heart really a class issue, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, like, I don't, I don't want to call it a faux issue as much as, as I want to say, like, I think everybody is, has every reason to mistrust the Trump administration. Right. Oh, yeah, sure, I mean, like, sure. you know, like, like, like let's not doubt that, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, and, and what I don't want is, you know, like, I live here in Brooklyn. I, I'm right near to Sunset Park. And, you know, people are desperate to go outside. Like, we've all been, you know, over two months now indoors. And I don't want the police going out and harassing people for not wearing masks either. Right. Because we know who they're going to disproportionately target in the middle of that. Right. So I don't think that that's the solution either. But I do think that, that what I'm seeing, like I'm from Tennessee originally, and as it's opened up, there are people there, good liberals, right, who agree with me. They tell me all day that they agree with me, you know, that they're so horrified what the Trump administration's doing. And then one of my good friends, like as soon as the as soon as business is reopened in Tennessee, he was going to his dojo to go to his karate class. You know, and, and like and you know, like my friends are going to the gyms. And I, and I, you know, so like and and you know what? Like if I'm being honest with myself, I understand it. I get this, like I've been, you know, it's been like I think eleven weeks now stay at home, and it's it's been tough. It's been emotionally and psychologically challenging. Like, thank God I'm not working in a slaughterhouse or any of these other terrible conditions. But this runs totally counter to our human nature. This runs totally counter to every impulse that we have, right? And so when you're given an opportunity to go outside and sit in the park, when you're given an opportunity to see your friends and the family for the first time in many, many weeks, uh, many, many people will jump to that conclusion that they should, you know, they will do it, right? Even though they know it's not in their best interest individually. And I think that's why it's so important for us to say this is the role of a state. 
in this moment is to have a strong intervention and to tell everybody this is the sacrifice we have to make and we have to make it together. And here are the clear prescriptions that we have for going forward. Everyone has to wear a mask when they go out in public and the mask isn't about protecting you. It's about protecting everybody else. You shouldn't be, you know, we should set up hours at the beginning of every day for grocery stores to open for the elderly and other at-risk populations. We should emphasize curbside pickup. You know, we should think about what are the things that we can do as a society to make this as easy as possible and to make it um, so, so that we everybody is, is is protected as opposed to what we have now, which is a fragmented response in which poor and working class people are the ones who are primarily getting uh, the virus, are primarily going to the hospital and dying. And even among that, it's black and brown folks who are oftentimes in these essential jobs, right? You know, the unemployment numbers that just came out are just shocking, right? You know, it's the largest loss of, of jobs in the country. Uh, since the Great Depression. And and what's fascinating about it is usually what you would expect in a recession is that the unemployment rate for black folks would be like double for white folks. That's not the case. It's, you know, it's like 14% for white folks. It's like 16% for black folks. And what that goes to show you is that so many black and brown folks are staying on the job in this moment because they're working those essential jobs or they're being told to report back to work because they're part of the phase one reentry in many of these states, right? So we know who's impacted by all of this and we need to make a collective decision about how we as a society are going to respond to it. It cannot be left up to individual decisions. That's not the answer. Right. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that I've been saying a lot, and I'm sure you have, I'm sure everyone, many people listening to this have been saying this, this a variant, making a variant of this argument for quite some time. But I, I heard uh, Matt Chrisman, host of Chapo Trap House, uh, say it at a Jacobin stay at home uh, episode interviewed by Connor Kilpatrick from Jacobin. And I was glad to hear him say it because he has a massive megaphone. But I'll, I'll sort of summarize what he's what he said and what I've been saying is that, you know, I, I'd like for you to talk a little bit with us, Chris, about why this is happening. I think, you know, the, the easiest way to look at it is, you know, the Republicans obviously are, don't give a rip about workers' rights. They're here to protect their, their sort of uh, co- the corporate oligarchs and, and this kind of um, rampant free market, you know, um, non-interventionist form of capitalism that's just uh, far to the right of anything that uh, any any Republican administration has has offered, you know, due to the failures of the left, the, the collapse of the New Deal system, all the rest of it. We can vamp on that. But even the Democrats right now have nothing to offer because any of the solutions uh, would require things that are just an anathema to to the mainstream establishment Democratic Party. You'd have to talk about, you know, things like uh, economic planning. You'd have to talk about massive redistribution of wealth and power. Uh, things like, um, you know, I mean, the, you, see, you hear the Democrats toying with the idea of a UBI, you know, a, a guaranteed income throughout the duration of this crisis. But at best, all they can all they can eke out are means tested. Um, you know, unemployment or or loan schemes, right? That most of us, present company included, have failed to collect on so far. It's been seven fucking weeks, okay. And you know, and 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 so it, you know, there's no doubt, there's no wonder why people are are clamoring to go back to work because it's their only fucking option. Uh, in you know, in in the absence of of better ones that are being prevented and held back by the class orientation of our <laughs> proud Democratic Party. Uh, what do you, what do you make of that impasse and that absence of of real options due to the the kind of political and class affiliations of our our duopoly that we live under, right? I mean, there's absolutely no doubt that the Democratic Party is just a massive failure, and I would add the AFL in this moment as well. Like, where are they on any of this? I haven't seen them. You know, I mean, like, so even before the pandemic hit, 28 million people were uninsured in the United States. Now you're adding another 33 million on top of that. We're talking about maybe one in every six people in the United States is walking around in the middle of a pandemic without any insurance. And yet the Democratic Party is not significantly talking about Medicare for all. You know, like for the first time in my life, I see healthcare workers on the front lines 
saying that, you know, it's not just a matter of the fact that we haven't been able to produce the amount of personal protective equipment or ventilators we need. It's the fact that when hospitals and states compete with each other for those resources, they end up getting hoarded and they don't, they aren't distributed and allocated to the places that need them the most. And in a rational system that was planned, you would be able to eliminate all of that. You would have one buyer who could set the price, set the limits instead of this eBay system for ventilator costs, driving everything up to the roof. And you'd be able to make sure that the people who need the stuff the most get it when they need it, right? So what do we do? We could nationalize our healthcare system like they do in in, in, in England, right? Yeah. So, you know, so well, for the actually, first time they I actually ride, did in Spain with the coronavirus started, they nationalized yeah. all the private hospitals. That's right. And Ireland, you know, <laughs> so like, yeah, so like, it's not like this is, this is not like an insane response, right? Like in a rational country, we would be having those kinds of discussions. If we had an actual opposition party, we would be having those kinds of conversations. Instead, you know, we're not. Uh, so I don't think there's any doubt. You know, and I also want to say, like, it's, it's really striking because when the economic stimulus, you know, when the CARES Act was passed, it was an intentional move to make sure that there wasn't funding in it to shore up the massive deficits that we're facing in states and cities across the country. And Schumer and Pelosi are not spring chickens, right? They were around in 2008 when the recession hit. They remember the, the responses that we had to have. They knew that those states and cities were going to be forced to run these massive deficits. And now they're being told by McConnell that he struck a red line in the sand, you know, that no one can cross that. If you want to have any aid, you've got to do massive austerity programs at the state level. And you've got to uh, eliminate any liability that employers have for calling people back to work and then they get sick and die. Right. So I have to believe that the reason why the Democrats didn't fight over that, the reason why the Democrats supported that is because at the end of the day, they have the same neoliberal politics as their Republican colleagues. Right. They support the interests of big business. They do not support the interests of working class people. Right. I mean, you see uh, Joe, was it Joe Kennedy, the third who went on Twitter earlier last week to push to you know give this mealy mouth like support. Uh, via tweet, right? Really meaningful form of political uh, action from a fucking congressman. Uh, but anyway, a, a, a tweet, right? Uh, you know, not, not to say that he could like write a fucking bill or co-sign something for once in his life, but I digress. You know, a tweet saying, you know, this this crisis really shows that we need Medicare for all, right? The same guy who's part of the the cohort, you know, the leading ruling cohort in in, in Congress and the Democratic Party who just sidelined the guy who who made that a key part of his platform and just completely marginalized that movement and now they're sort of showing this mealy mouth support for these policies and a which lot is more which is better than there. which is better than what a lot of Democrats are doing right now. Sure. Um, yeah, yeah. The last statement I heard from uh, the presumptive nominee about this was uh, was that he would veto it if it passed both houses. Right. Yeah. I mean. I mean. This. This is just. This is fucking suicidal behavior. I mean. And, and you. You don't want to be in, a, in an accelerationist about it and and be gleeful about the fact that this is going to go so badly for the political establishment that whatever comes next is going to be categorically not that, right? We could see some far right kind of form of populism that takes things in a really nightmarish uh, direction, or we could see, you know, the, 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 the rising up of, of the kind of political forces that have at least temporarily been subdued under the, Demi- uh, under the Bernie Sanders movement. Um, you, you mentioned the coming austerity. It's, you know, you mentioned to us all fair that you've got a piece coming out talking about the coordinated attacks uh, from the far uh, from the right wing in, in, in the Democratic establishment. Uh, what, what's 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 on tap here? Uh, what, what are some of the horror shows that we have to look forward to in the, in the near future? So I think we have to realize is that there is actually a well-coordinated, multi-pronged plan on the right that is being carried out from the state houses to the White House. Um, and, and that plan is pretty simple. You know, they said, OK, in the economic stimulus bill, we're going to give this uh, just you know unfathomable sums of money to employers without requiring them to keep workers on the payroll. 
right? And that's really critical. You know that we made that decision. Unlike the United Kingdom, the United Kingdom said that we're gonna we're gonna make this money a grant to businesses, and we're gonna pay up to eighty percent of the salaries of their employees if they keep them all on the payroll. And and this is profoundly important because what it show, you know many labor economists would agree that keeping people on the payroll helps to stabilize the economy moving forward, right? And and instead, what we've done is we've manufactured this massive spike in unemployment. Uh, and, 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 you know, I believe that that is at heart an intentional uh, thing that they're doing because, you know, they're wanting to stop unionization and it's in its tracks. They're wanting to keep people scared, make them desperate, help them to accept these terrible working conditions that they're about to go back into. So that's a part of it. Um, you know, and then at the state level, you know, now that they're reopening, the state governments are now working with employers. They've published these what I call snitch forms on on their Department of Labor websites where they're actively encouraging employers to to alert the state government if a worker is told that the business is reopened and they refuse to come back to work. So that way they can not only have their unemployment benefits canceled, but the government can actually begin to try to prosecute them for fraud. In many of these states that have had Republican majorities, they have actually passed, you know, like Michigan is an example. In Michigan, if you are found to have uh, received unemployment benefits when you had an offer on the table, you are on the hook then to pay four times the amount that you took plus 12% interest which is just absolutely insane, right? So like, so it's a highly punitive policing system that is scaring the shit out of all these workers because they're being told, you need to report back to work or we're going to come after yeah, you, right? Yeah. And I'll then, jump in because- here and being somebody who's who's been seeking some of this CARES Act money myself as a gig worker who my, my, my uh, you know, my income has been greatly uh, hurt by by this crisis and, and talking to other people who have, I mean, I've been approved for some money. I haven't gotten it yet. I know other people have been approved for for much larger sums of money. Some people are, are getting actually more than they, they would have made otherwise in a minimum wage job, which is good. I mean, these are efforts by the likes of Bernie Sanders and some other of the progressives in the, in the progressive caucus. But, uh, but even the people who are getting awarded these monetary valuations, they're afraid to do anything with it. I literally know a guy who, who has this money in his bank account. He's terrified to spend it because he's 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 concerned that he's going to get a letter or an email or a phone call from somebody saying, ah, no, 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 you were given this money by mistake. Uh, you, you don't really not really entitled to this. You know, you need to pay it back. Um, there are people who have no idea, like if what they're entitled to, they're just sort of applying and, and the forms are confusing. And, you know, the, these Internet forms are, are trying to serve cross purposes for for people who are like, say, wage workers and people who work in the gig economy and small business owners. And so the questions don't really apply to any 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 one person specific situation. It's a it's a horror show. And so the fact that they're coming at coming after workers in such a punitive way in the wake of such a confusing clusterfuck mess. It's not like there's a there's not a hotline that you just pick up the phone and call and ask a question about like, hey, am I entitled to this thing? It's just endless forms online and, and uh, you know, in black holes with with no contact information so that that's that's appalling stuff yeah yeah so that your buddy you know is afraid of being you know uh hammered with fraud charges while harvard and stake you know shake shack got these massive million dollar grants right that they then voluntarily got to say that they would get back after they got some bad pr with it right right yeah Uh, exactly absolutely well, so, so then, you know, just really quickly, the other side of this, right, like that, like thinking further down the line is that, you know, now that they're reopening and they're forcing everybody back to work by canceling their unemployment insurance and, and, and threatening them with fraud. And they're saying, well, like, we don't want to be held accountable once you get there. Right. Like, so if you get sick, if you die, the employers can't be sued for that. And so they're drawing this line in the sand to say we want to limit liability. And McConnell has already said any future economic stimulus that's going to have to go to the states, which they're desperate for, is going to have to be predicated on this, you know, having legislation to end it. 
uh, to end employer liability. And, you know, states like California are now facing a $54 billion deficit. And, and, and so you've got the state policy network, which is, you know, the, all of the right wing think tanks that exist in all 50 states that are funded by the billionaires have produced these laundry lists of, you know, austerity programs that they want to have instituted where they're telling, they're, they're literally telling the government of California that they want them to fire up to 25% of the workforce. They want them, you know, McConnell said, just go file bankruptcy. He's telling states to do something that they've never done before. And this is totally insane. So that way they can get out of their pension obligations. So, so let's screw the, the, the people who gave their life to the system, worked, worked their, the, you know, their ass off and have retired, you know, let's, let's remove any dignity that they have in this moment, uh, in order to, to make sure that we don't tax the rich anymore. So that's the plan on the right. You know, they're saying that we can actually use this crisis to say, screw the poor. We don't care about them. Screw the working people. We don't care about them. But you know, you probably saw Trump's tweet, right? Like he actually tweeted out, like the answer to this is capital gains tax cuts and limiting the liability of employers. <laughs> so, I mean, like, so everybody's on program. From the state legislation, like the ALEC members that are out there, the Republicans are all drumming this up. You know, they're encouraging the liberate, you know, movement, you know, the back to work movement in their states and the vigilante groups to show up um, all the way up to the White House. Let's be clear about what's happening. I've been following this for a long time. There's been really great people like investigative journalists, uh, like people who follow law and kind of contractual agreements for a long time. We've been talking about like how, for example, consumers are being increasingly locked into these uh, release of liability contracts. Right. You really can't buy anything these days, whether it's a cell phone, a washing machine or a gym membership without being forced to sign a contract that limits or eliminates any liability from the producer or, say, the gym or, or whomever. So that we as consumers, you know, are, are being trapped in these like, you know, these like, defenseless positions in society such that, you know, well, any cell phone you purchase, you're going to be required to do this. Any refer so, so you know, this alleged like freedom of the market is completely foreclosed on, and we're all trapped in these non liability. If my cell phone explodes in my pocket, that's my fucking problem. The billionaires who own Nokia back in the day or Samsung or whatever will, will never have to be liable for the damage that they have caused me. And, and people have said, you know, for years, uh, I've been following this, they've, they've said, like, you're going to see this creep into every aspect of our lives. And this right here is is one of the, uh, you know, never let a, a crisis go to waste moments where the right uh, in capital are, are, are essentially doing the same thing to, to the lives of workers, making the lives, the very lives and the health and safety of, of workers like completely null and void as, as a condition of employment. It's terrifying stuff. Yeah. And I mean, I, I guess like the, the sort of question I know nobody has a has a full answer to is what are we going to do about it, right? So like obviously right now, uh, the stuff you're talking about with McConnell, we are at best playing defense. I mean, obviously, even that metaphor is flawed because it suggests that the Democrats are on our team, which, you know, as you laid out very well earlier, they're not, right? I mean, like, in the middle of a plague that's you know already killed eighty thousand people, you know Cuomo is pre, you know is proposing Medicaid cuts in New York, right? You know it's it's not that's not the that's not our team. That's like the slightly less militant you know wing of the other team. But I mean, I I, I guess the question I I, I kind of wanted to to pick your brain on for a minute. And I know this is a little unfair because properly exploring it would take like three hours. But just for like a couple minutes, is this? I mean, if if we kind of try to think about the big picture of what we could do about all this, like, okay, how do we build up a left in the United States that could actually 
even be in a position to play defense, much less offense, right? You know, uh, and like as certainly as far as far as electoral strategy, for a long time the left was really leading on on the sort of figure of Bernie Sanders because he, in some ways, felt like he kind of came out of nowhere and provided this huge opportunity, and now that you know that crutch that we all got to lead on for a while has has gone away. And so it looks like we're going to have to much more slowly build up to maybe doing things we hoped that we could do much more quickly. And I think anybody who's thought about this at all realizes that that we need to, um, you know, go back into your Balawick, right? You know, that we need to rebuild the labor movement as part of any possible strategy for building an effective political left. I mean, I, I guess I was just wondering if you could maybe just speak for a couple of minutes to – like what the what the prospects for that are, are looking at looking like right now? Like what could like you know like the the DSA for example? Like if it wanted to make itself useful to that project, like what what would that look like? And like how how do you see that as related to the larger political project? Yeah, uh, those are great questions. So I, I think that one thing to realize about the right wing strategy that's taking place is that it is deeply unpopular. Right. I mean, like the, the 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 fringe movement showing up with the vigilante groups and and this, you know, at the state capitals, that is a tiny, tiny, tiny minority that's completely dependent on the massive infrastructure that has been built for them by the right. You know, the Fox News, the State Policy Network, the American Legislative Exchange Council, like the billionaires have had to pump so much money into building this because, you know, the vast majority of the people out there, you know, if you and all the polling shows that people are more worried about opening up the economy too soon than they are about the fact that they're having to struggle to get by. And, and it's a pretty bleak situation for many working class people. And this, I think, transcends to all of this stuff. Right. So you see, like Bernie Sanders, like we've won the argument on Medicare for all. In this country, the problem is, is that winning the argument is, while necessary, not sufficient, right? We have to have power. And so I think that the Bernie Sanders campaign, while amazing and did really incredible things, he was a labor candidate with a labor platform, just to say a socialist candidate, you know, a working class candidate with a working class platform, but without a working class movement of sufficient size to help carry him to victory and then to institute these kinds of programs and policies. So I think that the role of socialists in this moment, the, the, the role of trade unionists in this moment is to rebuild a vibrant labor movement and realizing that the vast majority of people that exist out there don't have a union. You know, I mean, so like we've got to build from where we're strong, transform the unions that currently exist, make them into the fighting organizations we know they can be that fight on behalf of everyone, not just their members. Right. And then from there, build out to try to get as many people as we can to organize in their workplaces. And I think one of the most encouraging things that I've seen that happened in this crisis was the fact that the DSA created a forum that said, hey, if you're interested in organizing your workplaces, reach out and then connected all of these union organizers, many of whom were like, you know, laid off or like working from home to then start having conversations with everybody. And while the vast majority of those aren't going to like translate into like, you know, unionized workplaces, that's the kind of relationships we need to be building in this moment. I mean, you know, I just say like DSA is like a very weak organization um, for many, for many reasons, but it's the best or, you know, biggest, you know, like socialist organization that I've seen in the last, you know, de- couple decades. And, 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 you know, I think that one of the things we have to do in this re- moment is recognize that, you know, not a lot of auto workers are in DSA. Not a lot of these slaughterhouse workers are, are in DSA. Um, but, you know, when, when the GM strike happened, a bunch of DSA folks were showing up to those picket lines and building relationships with those auto workers. And that's where we start, right? You know, these slaughterhouse workers that are going out on strike, uh, oftentimes without a union or, or despite their union, um, they need support too. And so it's up to us to build relationships meaningfully with these workers to support them in their causes. And that's going to, I think, in the long term, going to be a part of the project of building, you know, where we need to be. And it also means organizing new workplaces and transforming the shitty unions that are out there uh, into being the kinds of ones that we know we need. You know, like 
And just to give you, you know, one clear example of this, like the UFCW, I think, has really been missing in action in so many profound ways. Grocery stores, you know, across the country uh, have, have, you know, like there is just like such a, a range or, or spectrum of like what they've done. Like, you know, Kroger may say at the top, we're instituting hero pay where we're going to have people be socially spaced. We're going to have people with PPE. But then you get down to the store level and it's like, you know, we're going to kick the can. They can do whatever they want. We have no control over this. And if the local union isn't strong enough to fight on it, the international is just not doing anything. Right. So in, in many cases, the workers have lost. Um, any culture of organizing in these unions. And, and it's just degenerated to such a point. And, and, you know, because of the service mentality, they think, well, why am I even paying dues anymore? Um, and that's a sad state. So we've really got to rebuild a lot of these unions in these really important sectors like retail. Yeah, right. Of course. I mean, like, what if the, what are the big problems for uh, socialist organizing right now? Um, and, you know, as you say, the DSA is very weak. It's just, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, you know, also, like maybe like the least weak socialist organization that's existed since what, like the nineteen forties, right? You know, it's like, that's right. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's just a sign of how bad things are, right? That, uh, but of course, uh, you know, DSA members who are in unions are more likely to be in like grad student unions than steelworker unions, right? I mean, that's 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 pretty obvious. But although I, although even there, though, right? I mean, I know that this is there's no there's no perfect solution to to this problem because I think maybe. Like having a more like a better socialist organization on that scale that was more embedded in, in these like crucial sectors of the working class. Some of that would have have to happen organically, right? As as a result of of maybe organizations that you know, like like you might just have to have an organization that was formed among steel workers, right? And then it could get together with the DSA or whatever, rather than like just sort of expected that the organization of grad students is going to recruit a bunch yeah. of steel workers. Well, I got news for you. In this economy, uh, it's quite likely that some of those people who used to be in grad student unions are going to be steel workers one day. <laughs> uh, and you know what? And you know what? And they'll be fucking but, happy and lucky if they are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, well, I'm not, a, I'm not knocking it. You know, it beats yeah, the yeah. shit out of driving for uh, you know Uber Eats. You know, a good a good good steel job. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And of course, there's also. I mean, look. I think part of the reason why. I mean, DSA is a positive symptom of this, right? You know, part of the reason why there has been so much radicalization now, often for people who do come from this kind of professional middle managerial class background, um, you know, which which carries with it all kinds of things that aren't good. We've talked about extensively, but still, right, is precisely because of long-term trends like that, not just this sort of maybe catastrophic stuff that's going to happen now, but, you know, but I mean, not to be too cheesy about this before we had the coronavirus, we had the neoliberalism virus already. And, uh, and so that a lot of people were very downwardly mobile, right? Even a lot of people who, who were grad students or something, you know, you could be in like the lucky 20% or whatever of people who actually get tenure track jobs or increasingly, what you're what you are is the academic version of that Uber Eats driver, right? You know, that's uh I mean that was actually my, you know, the two years that I was a very small time union official, you know, I was in the uh, adjunct union uh at Rutgers, uh, which was actually taken over by a rank and file caucus, which was really great, although the the timing was hideous because like when that was finally successful was essentially like you know, just a just a few months ago, right? So, uh, and now, I mean, I think like ninety percent of those people are losing their jobs, you know, and and I, and I'm not sure that there's anything that can be done about that, you know, on the um, 
even with the sort of more militant orientation, you know, that the union has now. The NLRB is also probably licking its chops to completely destroy uh, new, new, new groups. Yeah, like which, which, by the way, I mean, I also think that's a sign, you know, that I don't know if we all even have the same perspective on this or whatever. It's not something I'll push. But, like, I think that that's a sign that a lot of people aren't thinking strategically enough about the relationship between rebuilding the labor movement and – created openings for meaningful breakthroughs for mass socialist politics is that like when people talk about the, um, the election um, and, you know, should you, you know, hold your nose and vote for the senile rapist, neoliberal, you know, whatever people will sometimes talk about like court appointments, but something I almost never hear anybody bring up, but I mean, I'm trying to constantly push is no, I mean, you, the, the thing that like, yeah, I mean, court appointments are important too. Right. But like, you know, one of the things you should be talking about way more is what the NLRB appointments are going to be, you know, because because that's that's really one of the most dangerous things about the kind of administration we have right now that, you know, that it's 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 that it's it's actively crusading to destroy what little is left of, of collective bargaining in American workplaces. And, and that's surely only going to get worse. Right. Like especially. Especially now with everything Chris is talking about, because, you know, the, the right, you know, despite not having its solutions be very popular, is very, very good at using whatever base it has uh, to push them. And they're not going to let a, you know, crisis of this magnitude go to waste, you know, so so they're going to, you know, they're going to do the economic equivalent of like, if you remember, like, you know, Jesus, I'm almost 20 years ago, right, when um, – there was this detail in Bob Woodward's book about the uh, Bush administration where he had uh, – he it was like very talked about at the time about how like one of the first meetings after 9-11 to talk about the foreign policy response. I think like Cheney or Rumsfeld or one of those ghouls had something as notebook, you know, his notes that Woodward looked at right from the meeting where he said sweep up everything related or not, right? You know, and I think that's what we're going to see an economic equivalent of right now, you know, from uh, – for the right wing is, you know, is that, right? Sweep up everything related or not, right? Anything that's on their wish list as far as austerity and, and, and crushing unions and everything else, you know, like there's there's no, you know, they there's no reason from their perspective not to use this as an excuse to do that. I think the really important thing to think about in this moment, it, you know, so I, I for this piece I'm working on, I interviewed a link, Nancy McLean, it's just brilliant. And, you know, she wrote the book Democracy in Chains. Mm-hmm. And what she points to is the fact is that the right, you know, is, again, a super minority of people with really deeply unpopular views who are only capable of instituting them because they've rigged the rules of the game. Right. So rule rigging is at the heart of it. Gerrymandering, voter disenfranchisement, the destruction of the NLRB. Uh, you know, in all of these conservative court appointments all across the country, right? They've just been pumping them out, right? Like all of these judges, uh, you know, to, 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 to basically lay out the, like, make it as difficult as possible for us to organize within the, the rules that exist, you know, currently for all of us. Now, I mean, Eric Loomis is a great historian, I think has made a really strong argument that like, you know, organizing at its best can only get so far as its ability to disentangle the ability of employers to use the state to smash us yeah. and that we should take that really seriously. So he takes the question of like, whether or not you should vote for Biden or support Biden to, to be, you know, to be one like, of course, he's toxic. Of course, he's terrible. But who's going to give us the best chance to organize? Right. Who's going to give us the best chance to disentangle the people who are making the rules and to start to make shifts uh, where we can? And, and you know, you know, not to be overly structuralist about this, but I think 
I think these are really important limitations to what any group of workers in a particular workplace can do, any particular union can do. And we've got to be thinking big. We've got to be ambitious, you know. Um, so one of the things that came out this May Day was the bargaining for the common good network. So that they're trying to do is to get unions in, in cities and states across the country to map out their contract expiration dates. So, you know, Chicago, the Chicago Teachers Union, they can go out on strike. And that's amazing. They have incredible amounts of power, right? But unless we can bring far more workers into that fight meaningfully to, to, put, to stop capital in its tracks, we're not going to be able to restructure the tax code of Chicago, right? Like, you know, I mean, like y- your ability as one union to take on the billionaires is inherently limited. We've got to bring more people into it. So that's the kind of ambitious organizing I think that we need to be thinking about is, you know, it, and it starts with with people taking over their crappy union, right? But it doesn't end there. You know, we've got to have kind of a longer term game, a bigger picture, just be as ambitious as the right has been, right, into, into stacking things up the way that they have. Yeah. So one of the things that Ben and I lamented at length in last week's uh, episode, listeners will know, is that, uh, you know, as of yet, we've already hinted to this in, in our chat today, but we've hinted at the fact that, uh, you know, two, maybe let's, I'll, I'll throw you in here, Chris, maybe, you know, uh, three political junkies, to put it lightly, uh, you know, try as we may, we'll be hard pressed to find the clear cut demands emerging from really any left or, or socialist institution right now. And, and, and you know, and I, look, uh, all those challenges notwithstanding, I know there are a lot of really important, you know, really great militants, both in the trade union movement and also the socialist movement, say DSA or otherwise, who are pushing for these demands and are fighting tooth and nail in their branches and their chapters uh, and their locals, uh, maybe their nationals uh, to, to institute some of these demands. But there's, you know, the, the, the democratic culture has been degraded over the, over the past couple of uh, decades. You know, the ability to make the, the kind of channels required to produce kind of like um, coordinated collective democratic, uh, you know, t- choices, particularly in the labor movement, uh, have been uh, degraded. But if, if you could have it your way, if you were uh, emperor for the day, <laughs> with all of these communicative uh, deliberative, uh, you know, democratic mechanisms being degraded in the ways that they are on the left in the labor movement. If you could bypass all of that, what are some of the principal demands that you would put forward and, and who are the principal agents here? Because we've really, you know, people are, for, for lack of any other options, they're just saying, well, fuck it. I guess we have to go back to work. We are failing when it comes to putting forward any alternative messaging here. And there are, there are reasons as to why that's the case. We don't own the media. You know, the, the, the plutocrats do. The political class owns the media. We, we don't, you know, we, all of those things notwithstanding, even if we had access to these channels, it wouldn't even be clearly obvious what, what we might say and how we might frame it and, and who, who the principal agents might be. So uh, let's, let's end on that. And, and just, to, just to maybe put a, put a little bow on that, right? I mean, I think that one of the things that uh, like, like, okay, like what are the reasons that Bernie was so effective and as, as, as Chris said, doing the thing that's a necessary but not a sufficient condition, right? You know, winning the argument um, is because like Medicare for all is, is such a, a simple bullet point, right? It's, it's five syllables, right? Any, everybody knows exactly what that means, right? It's just, it's just like, and and that's and that's incredibly effective because like you know if I mean look if you if you want to know exactly what like most Democrats like healthcare proposals are you have to like maybe look at their website and poke around for a while you know but like literally everybody everybody knew that whereas like um, maybe I know one analysis I've seen of of one of the 
many causes for the letdown in the last British election is that the uh, Labour manifesto had all this great stuff in it, but it was sort of overstuffed with like everything, right? And and what and so nothing really stood out uh, that much. And also, once you start piling on all the things you're going to do. I think a lot of people say, oh, "Okay, I, I could I could tell when I'm I'm in the presence of like a Christmas wish list, right? Yeah, it's you know, like a four year old's Christmas <laughs> wish list. That's what kept kept uh, yeah, yeah. kept going to mind there. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay, you want a pony? Yeah, and you want this? You want a Barbie playhouse? You want a okay? But, yeah. Whereas, like, if if you if we have like maybe like two or three things that are very like easily grasped and sound like there's some chance that they might happen. That it's like a little easier to to galvanize people around them, right? So, and I, I think maybe you, you talk about what some of those things are in, in the hammer and the dance. So, but I mean, like just just like in that kind of like real bullet pointy kind of way, right? Like, like what should our message be right now? Oh, that's great. Well, so I think um, one is the virus is natural, but the impact it has on us is socially determined, right? It's a matter of policy that we're letting so many people die. It's a matter of policy that we're letting so many people go without unemployment, right? These are political decisions that we are making. And, uh, you know, it's very clear that we as a society can afford for people to go, you know, one of the things I was struck by at the beginning of the crisis is that if we had missed an entire month of work, the average American worker by the end of the year would still work more than the average German worker. Holy shit. <laughs> I mean, people aren't even talking about that, Jesus. right? Like, so the amount of, mm. like, so we have an unhealthy relationship to work and productivity in this country because we have an unhealthy relationship yeah. to capitalism, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, we're just Europe, letting Europe, it abuse us. Europe doesn't go to work, like, at all in August. Like, they, 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 just, sh- <laughs> like, they just shut down all of August. So we could have just shut down, like, you know, most of April and not lost anything on the global economy in, t- in terms yeah. of competitiveness. So, you know, locking down the economy, in my opinion, was the right thing to do. I think we what we did is we then squandered all of that time, right? Rather than building the mass testing, what we need, the mass tracing program we need. We didn't do any of that. That's number one. We have to do that. We have to build it. It's a jobs program. Let's put people to work. Let's trace. Let's test. Um, let's let's put people to work making the PPE that we need, like personal protective equipment. Like, honestly, nobody should go into any building with other people without a properly fitted N95 respirator mask on their face. That is a crazy thing to say right now because no, because no politician will back that up. But every scientist you talk to, every occupational health and safety expert will tell you that's what they're doing. <laughs> you know, if they go to the grocery store, they're going to be wearing one of those. So, you know, I, it's good enough for the working class, in my opinion, to be able to have what we need in order to show up in public with each other. I think that should be a non-starter. And, and you know, I was so disappointed to see the USA Today uh, editorial that was published on April 13th um, by Randy Weingarten, the president of AFT, Chris Shelton at ATU, Mary Kay Henry at SEIU, and James Hoffa at the Teamsters that, that was entitled Coronavirus is a Stress Test for Capitalism, and we see encouraging signs. Like, what a Jesus joke. Christ. So. You know, so like right now, you know, two, 400 families have $2.9 trillion. They could literally pay for everybody to say, to, to receive $10,000 to sit at home for the next three months. They could literally pay for everybody to get an N95 mask. They could literally pay for Medicare for all and all still be billionaires at the end of it. Right. But rather than talking about that, talking about we live in the, we live in a society of gross inequality where people are expected to show up to work and possibly die so their boss can keep getting rich. You know, we have uh, all these union leaders that are trying to cozy up and cuddle with employers. It's just disgusting. So we need to rebuild a fighting labor movement, one that actually has a perspective that that is that is reflecting reality on the ground, which is that the boss doesn't give a shit about us and they're more than willing to let us die, uh, you know, to keep business humming. 
Spot on. I think that's yeah, that's as an, uh, as good of a rallying cry as as there is. I think that uh, the left needs to get its. Uh, I say this with love. Left needs to get its head out of its ass and uh, focus in on the the real problems uh, that that are in front of us. But but let's be honest. I mean, this is if if we could invent and if in our wildest imagination a more disarticulating force for the left. Uh, you'd be hard pressed to, to 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 find one more so than than the current COVID crisis, and 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 I think like maybe final final question: What can workers do? Because I mean, it's disarticulating in terms of how many questions it raises and how many debates emerge on the left. You know, or we already talked about a, a number of those, but it's disarticulating in in a physical sense too. Because you know, when you're not at work and in, in you know in proximity to your fellow workers being like one of the 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 this most central components to most forms of labor organizing is like totally it's rendered impossible or it's foreclosed upon um unless you know you're stuck on a a factory uh, you know line which is sped up and because all regulations have been uh you know erased in the midst of this crisis but anyway uh so what what do people do out there listening well, I, I'll make a prediction. One is that as the states continue to reopen, people are going to be expected to show back up to work and risk their life. And that's going to change the entire logic of, pro- of protest in this moment. Because like, if I'm expected to show up and risk my life at work, why wouldn't I go out in the streets to protect my life? As well, right? So I think that I think I think the 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 risk and reward that people are gonna are gonna be thinking about is gonna fundamentally shift once the once all the the, the states begin to reopen. Um, the other is that what we've been encouraging people at Labor Notes to do is is to start thinking about like if you're expected to go back to work, form a health and safety committee. You don't have to have a union, but if you have a union, definitely do it. Right? Get get your coworkers together and actually come up with a plan. What does it look like to make my workplace as health as healthy and safe as possible? What needs to be in place? How do I talk to my to the rest of our coworkers about that? How do we get them involved in a plan to put pressure on our boss to make that happen? To make sure that we have the personal protective equipment we need. To make sure that breaks are being staggered appropriately. To make sure that people aren't walking in and out through the same gates and touching the same things to make sure that we're over six feet apart. You know, people have a lot of magical thinking about this six feet. Six feet is just a random number they came up with based on the idea that a droplet coming out of your mouth is probably going to fall to the ground before then. But this is a, an actual aerosol. Like it's, it's in the air. It's particulate. So you can breathe that in. If you don't have a respirator and you're stuck in the same room with somebody else, if they're more than six feet away, you're still eventually going to breathe whatever they're putting out. So we've got to be smart about this. That means people have to get literate on it. They have to know, you know what the risks are and they've got to hold their employers accountable to keeping them safe. And they're not going to do that of their own volition. They're not going to do it because they're nice people. They're going to do it because we make them. And in this moment, the political winds are in our back. The vast majority of the public agrees that people should not be forced into a position where they're having to make a choice between putting food on my table and a roof over my head and keeping my life, you know, staying healthy, not going to the hospital. That's a false choice and nobody wants to make it happen. Yeah. Yeah. Spot on. I mean, it's a very scary time. There's going to be a lot of pain and suffering. There's already been a lot of pain and suffering. Um, You know, there's no there's no cause for celebration. But I think, uh, you know, one thing that we can at least hold our heads high on is is the fact that, you know, the conditions for struggle are, are ripening. Uh, to put it lightly, and and there's going to be a lot of you know, despite it's it's easy. I think everyone feels kind of beaten down and 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 maybe depressed right now, particularly maybe in the, in the wake of the Bernie movement and and all the rest of it. But there's a lot there's a lot of opportunities for struggle on the horizon, and uh, you've given us a lot to think about. So again, thanks again for joining us on DPS, Chris Brooks, staff writer and organizer at Labor Notes. Come back and talk to us again, real soon. Definitely will. Thank you. All right. That was one hell of an interview with Chris Brooks. I really appreciated and enjoyed the hell out of that. I know you guys probably did as well. He is a wealth of information about anything and everything related to the labor movement. And we'll be having him on again in the future for sure. 
So that wraps up today's A-side. We're going to take it over to the B-side for the patrons. If you guys want access to that, as well as all of the other Patreon-related goodies, head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and subscribe, and you will get instant access to not only this week's B-side, which will be airing on Thursday, as with all the other B-sides in the future, but you'll get access to our entire back catalog of subscriber-only content that includes, in case you missed it, as well as B-sides and other patron goodies. So that's all for today's A-side. See you on the B-side.